Okay, while everybody is taking their seat, just a couple of announcements to remind you about. The first is that the Chafer Conference begins next uh, Monday. Uh, There are no, uh, we have a limited number, we've limited it to 75, and there's no walk-ins. I don't know if today's announcement changes anything. Ladies, does today's announcement change anything? Well, yeah, but he said everything is open to 100%. I don't think anybody's going to make a big deal about 48 hours. Just saying. I mean, I'm not that, I'm just telling you, I'm not that legalistic. Okay. All right, uh, men's prayer breakfast is the Saturday following the conference on March the 13th, and the Israel trip was canceled because of the uncertainties of, of flight and being Israel being open to, to uh, tourism. That said, I hope everybody celebrated today in one way or another. Today is Texas Independence Day, and you ought to take the time, and I should have done it for tonight, you should have taken the time to read the Texas Declaration of Independence. It is modeled after the U.S. Declaration of Independence, and it's a great statement. And it shows the, that the people of that time, almost 200 years ago, had a heart hunger for freedom. And we have a generation today who has a heart hunger for servility, for slavery, for domination, and to be tyrannized. And I don't know that anything can change that except the Word of God. But once a nation turns into that cycle, that lower cycle, the cycle of of, of nations, then it, it takes maybe centuries to recover. And we see that to some degree in our study of judges. For three to four hundred years, they suffered under multiple invasions and multiple uh, tyrants, and they would scream out to the Lord to deliver them, and he would, and they just did not stick with the word and didn't have capacity for freedom at all. And so once again, they were plunged back into uh, servitude to some foreign power. And we just need to pray that that is not the direction that we that we end up. We are headed in that direction, though. So, having said that, we need to go to the Lord in prayer because the only solution, ultimately, to everything that's going on around us is, no, not the rapture. It's spiritual growth, spiritual maturity. So we need to understand the dynamics of failure because in the contrast, we will come to understand better the dynamics of spiritual success. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer and uh, that make sure we are spiritually prepared for our study this evening, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we know that you are our rock, you're our fortress, you are our strong tower. 
You are the God who has truly moved heaven and earth to create a plan of redemption that will save us, that will bring us uh, into spiritual maturity and culminate in our glorification and eternity with you. Father, we cannot fathom the uh, depths of your magnificent love and your grace toward us. So, Father, we pray that we would be able to reflect that grace to a nation that is that has enslaved itself to its own lusts, that has enslaved itself to to its desires, to its ignorance, and to false gods of ideologies and philosophies that will do nothing but destroy them. And Father, we have the answer, and we pray that we might be used by you to bring that answer to this uh, world that is lost and is dying and is in the process of committing suicide socially and culturally and spiritually. And we pray that we might be used in a way to give them the glorious gospel. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to Judges chapter 1. Judges chapter 1. And tonight we're going to begin to get into uh, this uh, tremendous book and this tremendous study. We've gone through four previous lessons dealing with uh, introductory concepts to um, understand it. And tonight what I want to do is give us an overview, not of the whole book because I've already done that, but an overview of this opening section which begins in the first verse and goes down to chapter 3, verse 6 to get an understanding of what is happening here. And as we do that, we'll come back and circle back and touch on a couple of things that are usually covered in introductions. But we get into... Uh, some uh, alleged conflicts, contradictions, as we get into the very very first verse. So we're going to uh, just start with that kind of an overview, but I want to remind you of what God's plan was for Israel. When God called Abraham, thinking back to Genesis chapter 12, he called out Abraham for a special purpose, that the world of mankind had shown such a rejection of God over and over again. We think about how evil the human race was. God said the thoughts of their heart were evil continually, and that was his assessment of that uh, civilization before the flood. After the flood, he gave a covenant to Noah, and with that he established human government and told them to scatter and fill the earth, and they disobeyed him, and the government that they established was a government of tyranny. And that was a tyranny under Nimrod, who was the head of this initial empire of Babylon, and they built the Tower of Babel in disobedience to God, and God uh, came down and he scattered the languages. And so at that point, God's plan shifted, and he was no longer going to work through the entirety of the human race, and everything is focused on the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's a long-term plan. It, It wasn't accomplished in a year or a decade or a century, but he told Uh, Abram, that that his descendants would spend 430 years in a foreign country, 
before God brought them back. And when God brought them back, it was through these 10 incredible plagues, these judgments that he brought upon Egypt, all but destroying Egyptian civilization. And the last of which was designed to not only teach about the redemption, the political redemption that God was bringing to Israel at that time, but also to uh, foreshadow and to give elements uh, that would teach something about a future complete redemption that would provide for the redemption of all mankind from the slavery to sin. And he called Israel out to be a unique nation in Exodus 19 to be a kingdom of priests. They were to be distinct or unique from all of the other nations. And God emphasized this many times in uh, Exodus and Leviticus. And I pulled out four verses here in Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44, 45, then in chapter 20, verses 7 and 26. And notice what God says. First of all, in 1144, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And as we have learned so many times, is that holiness doesn't mean that you have a certain pious expression on your face. It doesn't mean that you have a certain pious way in which you uh, carry yourself. It has to do with living as a distinct person. You set apart to the service of God. That's the essential idea of kadash, the Hebrew verb that relates to uh, holiness. It means to be set apart just as the inanimate objects, the objects of metal and the objects of, of uh, the jewelry, the objects of cloth in the tabernacle were all set apart, holy. They're set apart to the service of God. It doesn't mean they were morally perfect. It doesn't mean they were moral because inanimate objects cannot be moral, immoral at all. So it just indicates they're set apart for the service of God. And being set apart to the service of God means that you're distinct, you're unique, and that's what it means when we talk about God as a holy God. He is distinct, he is unique. He is one of a kind. There is no other. And we are to be set apart to him. Israel was to be set apart to him. You shall be holy, for I am holy. In 1145, again, you shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. And in verse 7 of chapter 20, be holy, for I am the Lord your God. And verse 26, you shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy. But there's a set of words that go in conjunction with this that are also built off of that root root word, uh, kadash, uh, which has to do with that process of being set apart to God and starting with an initial action. And that is the word that is translated uh, consecrate. We have there, they are told to consecrate themselves. This is an initial act of uh, setting themselves apart to God. Uh, In verse 44, therefore, consecrate yourselves and you shall be holy for I am holy. Leviticus 20, verse 7, consecrate yourselves, therefore, 
And it means to set yourself apart, to make a decision. It emphasizes that. It's addressed to the volition. It is an imperatival verb. And so they are to concentrate themse- consecrate themselves, and that reflects the fact that God has separated Israel from the people, from the goy. And what we see here is that in the book of Judges, they are just the opposite. They are not set apart. They are not separate from the people. They want to be just like all of the other nations, all of the Gentiles, all the people, and not be holy. And this is why we have these various statements in Judges uh, that talk about the, the basic problem in Israel. They had rejected the authority of God as the king, and everyone wanted to be their own authority. Pure antinomianism. That is what we see in our culture today. We have given ourselves over to uh, reject and set aside the absolute standards that God has established. And we see so many people, and this did not begin in our generation. It did not begin in our parents' generation. But the roots of this uh, culturally in terms of Western civilization really do go back to the end of the 17th century and into the 18th century. And it's during that time that you had the roots of, of liberalism develop, theological liberalism. And yes, there are certain underlying presuppositions that connect the liberalism of, 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 of theology to the liberalism of politics, but we're not getting into that yet. What we see here, or what we saw in history at that time, was the rejection of the biblical worldview, the rejection of this claim that all that we see, all that we have around us has been created out of nothing by God. And therefore, the universe itself is not a closed universe, it is an open universe, And that means that God is out there and God looks into and oversees and directs the affairs of human history. That it is not in a closed universe, everything within it causes itself and there's no external force that guides or directs or influences what is going on uh, inside of the universe. And so aside from... Biblical Christianity, and we could say biblical Judeo-Christianity, all other philosophies, all other worldviews, all other ways of looking at and explaining life, all start with this, this closed system that man can actually come to a knowledge of truth without going outside of the created uh, the created universe, and therefore man can make up his own ideas about the world and about life and about meaning and about purpose and happiness and what uh, what the values are, what the norms and standard standards are, what the laws should be, and so man becomes the center of the universe rather than God, and the result before long is we have to decide which man is going to make the laws. And that devolves and deteriorates into into warfare, into separating, into, as one historian put it, about 
uh, the wars in the Middle Ages, it was just one gang fighting another gang, just one gang of hoodlums coming along fighting another gang of hoodlums. And he's talking about all the various, what we what we call the barbarian tribes of the Goths and the Visigoths, which were the uh, Western Goths and the Ostrogoths, the Eastern Goths and the Vandals and the Franks and the Burgundians and all of these Germanic tribes, the Teutons and all coming down uh, into Western Europe and invading it and creating uh, several centuries of chaos. And the only source of any stability during that period that we refer to as the Middle Ages was what was taking place within institutional Christianity at the time. Uh, it, It is referred to by the elitist, arrogant intellectuals of the Enlightenment as the Dark Ages. Uh, They called themselves the Enlightenment. They were enlightened, and they had gotten rid of the church. They had gotten rid of these theological ideas. And what preceded them was now the the Dark Ages. But the Dark Ages weren't dark at all. You had in the church, in the monasteries, you had the uh, the monks who learned to read and to write and they made copies of scripture and they taught and they were taught and the foundation and the center of all of their education was the Bible. Now they may have had problems with interpretation. They may have problems with hermeneutics and some of their theology was not what we would say was biblical theology, but they preserved the text And in some cases, and in cases where not a lot is preserved for us, there were those who did understand the gospel. We know of some of them along the way. And eventually, God raised up some men at the time of the Protestant Reformation to put an end to the uh, horrible theology and the horrors of the legalism and also the tyranny of the Roman Catholic Church over at least parts of Europe, and every everything changed. But but we, we go back, and you had the establishment of universities because they had to train, train the monks, and they were educated. And they were, you go back to even into the 5th century, and you had men like Boethius, and Boethius translated a large chunk of Aristotle into Greek and uh, into uh, Latin and Plato so that the scholars could access uh, these ancient Greek philosophers and they uh, they taught and they thought within a very educated frame of, of reference. But that wasn't what was going on outside of the cultural wall, shall we say, of the impact of Christianity. But yet that is not how it is normally taught. We have to recognize that it is those who understand the authority of God and submit to God that are the real source of stability in in any nation. And we see that exemplified in our study of of these uh, judges. So we've looked at this broad outline of the judges. Shofetim is the Hebrew word. And it describes not judges in the sense that we think of courtroom justices. They were more of a combination of advisors, uh, wise counselors, chieftains, tribal uh, rulers, leaders, something of that nature, military commanders. 
So we don't have a word that just captures that in, in one particular uh, term. And so we have the first three chapters or the introduction to the book that help us to understand what happened spiritually that causes the cycles that take place during this period and how Israel goes from spiritual victory to being worse than the Canaanites. They're going to out-paganize the pagans by the end of this book. And they have an incomplete obedience to God, a compromise with the pagan systems of thought that surround them, and it leads to spiritual failure and then moral failure. And God takes them through the cycles of discipline that are outlined in Leviticus uh, chapter 26. So Israel will adopt these pagan um, principles and policies and philosophies and politics and procedures to where they look just like the pagans. Then the leaders are going to be paganized. And we see this decline from the best of them, Othniel, to the worst of them, Samson. And then we see in the appendices, the afterwards, as as it is in chapters 17 through 21, the paganization of, of of the priests. And so as we approach this, I want to take the time to just give us an overview of these first uh, chapters. Now, you may be looking at uh, some different books and see some different ways in which the uh, book is outlined, but the best way to understand the outline is the one that I have up here on the screen, that it doesn't end in 2.6, where again we have um, a statement of uh, at the end of this confrontation that takes place when the angel of the Lord, who is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, uh, comes to Israel and uh, challenges them with their disobedience and explains what has happened, interprets for them the historical events that have transpired, and then he is going to tell them what the spiritual consequences are for for them and for their children, and it is so harsh that they weep and they call this place Bochim. And this is described as having taken place just before the death of Joshua. If you look at two seven, it says, "So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua." But the first verse says, "Now after the death of Joshua." Now, if you are a liberal critic and you're coming along and you read this, you say, well, whoever edited this just didn't get their uh, chronology right. He just did not explain this correctly, and there's a contradiction uh, that is taking place here. And that is typical of the arrogance of the liberal scholarship that developed starting really in the... Um, in the 1700s in, in Europe. And the root, the root assumption that is made by these critics of the Bible is that there is no God. They approach the text with a closed mind. There is no God. There is nothing supernatural. Nothing about this is actually true. It is just 
a mythology made up to give some sort of purpose and meaning uh, to these Jewish tribes. And embedded in that is a subtle form of anti-Semitism. They're rejecting the God of Israel because they are rejecting the significance of Israel. And by the time you get into the early uh, early 19th century, you have the development of a scholarly theory that swept that swept academia in the 19th century. It went sort of hand-in-hand with what developed in other disciplines in areas such as biology with the writings of Darwin uh, in uh, the areas of uh, sociology, in the areas of psychology, in the areas of uh, political theory with Marxism and uh, economics. And it all starts with this presupposition of that there's nothing out there other than that which is material, physical. Everything comes from a natural source. There's nothing supernatural about it. And there were two German scholars, and I talk extensively about this. And if you have uh, junior high or high school kids then they should listen. It's, I think it's the third or fourth lesson that I did as an introduction to Genesis where I go through the question of who wrote the Pentateuch. And they just, at the very outset, they reject the idea that Moses could have written the Pentateuch or that the Pentateuch could have been written as early as 1500 uh, B.C., or actually uh, 1446 to 1406 B.C. And I remember being taught this as a somewhat naive college kid, freshman, going into about my third class in, in Western civilization in college and hearing the professor uh, talk about this, and he liked to tweak freshmen. And I can understand that because freshmen are, at least back then, tended to be naive. And so he would uh, get these kids from East Texas who had grown up in their Baptist church and they would come to uh, college and he would throw this stuff out in terms of an ad hominem argument or in terms of a devil's advocate in order to uh, get them to wake up and think a little bit to some degree, but he he didn't believe this. I mean, I had conversations with him some 20 years later and uh, challenged him on it and went through the outline of the evidence against his view, and it didn't matter because the alternative to their view of anti-supernaturalism is that God really does exist and the Bible's true, in which case I'm in trouble. But he taught this view, and I remember coming back, talking to my pastor and saying, have you ever heard of this view that that, the Pentateuch was written by four different people, none of whom was Moses, and one guy preferred the name uh, Yahweh or Jehovah, so he's called the J-Writer. Another one preferred the name Elohim, and so all the verses that use Elohim, those are written by the E-Writer. And then there was someone who was really concerned about all of the rituals, and he's called the priestly writer. And then somebody came along at the end, kind of summarized it a new way, and that became Deuteronomy. He's called the D-writer, and he went through and was probably the final redactor putting everything 
uh, putting everything together. And all of that happened after Israel came back to the land from Babylon. But that's the view. It's called the JEDP theory. It's called the documentary hypothesis. And then sometime later, after that had had some success in in uh, com- completely deceiving the mass of arrogant academia, uh, they decided, well, let's see if we can push this a little further and see if that we can discover sources for um, so- sources for. Uh, Joshua and for judges. Now they weren't quite as successful as that. Actually, there's a there's a couple of books. Uh, there's one by a, uh, a Hebrew scholar is uh, that is uh, that taught. He was Italian. His name was Umberto Casuto. He wrote about a 90 page book that completely totally devastates this whole theory. There is a book. I think it's called This Is My God. It's by Herman Wouk. Herman Wouk is a well-known American Jewish author. He wrote The Cain Mutiny. He wrote Winds of War and War in Remembrance. He wrote uh, another uh, series called Hope and Glory, which uh, tells you the story of the uh, of Israel's war for independence in the first one, and then it tells of the subsequent wars in the 50s and 60s afterward. And Wook was a um, he was an Orthodox Jew, and he goes through there and shows how silly it is to take a work of literature and to then chop it all up and say, well, one person wrote wrote these parts of it and another person wrote these parts of it. C.S. Lewis did the same thing. His actual area of expertise was medieval English literature, and he uh, wrote a piece at one time where he took a um, uh, well-known piece of English literature and chopped it all up and said, well, this was written by one guy and this was written by somebody else. And it's just absurd to think that uh, that anything was written in that manner. Nothing in the ancient... They don't try to apply anything like that to Homer or to uh, to the Iliad or the Odyssey or to uh, Virgil at all. They just say, okay, well, one person wrote that. So it's it just absurd. But they look at these things that they think are apparent contradictions and they they build on that. And they they try to argue that this is written by uh, several different people, so they came up with uh, and invented different uh, different writers. And Yehiskel Kaufman is a well-known archaeologist and a Jewish scholar describes it this way in this particular quote, which I thought was quite good. He said, "Scholars follow the well-trodden paths." and continue the tradition. They base their examination of the biblical text on the rules of Latin composition. Now, you've heard me make comments many times the way translators, uh, they'll have, in, in within three or four verses, five different uses of the same Greek word. But then they will say, well, that doesn't make good English uh, English literature, so we're going to translate it with five different English words. So they're imposing their cultural ideas of literature on the text of the Bible. And that's what Kaufman is talking about here. They examine the biblical text on the basis of the rules of Latin composition. 
They start from the assumption that the true and original text must be consistent, and if it is not consistent, it must be corrected by scissors and paste work. Now, you have to ask the question, where do, what, where do they get their standard for consistency? They're getting it out of their, their cultural concept of what, uh, what, how history should be written and how literature should be written. Kaufman goes on to say the biblical storyteller must have had a schema. He must keep a sequence. See, that's what their idea is. You have to have this plan. You have to follow a certain sequence that is chronological if you're writing history or telling a story. You're not allowed to repeat yourself. He's forbidden to retrace his steps and so on. Scholars discover everywhere duplications, contradictions, derangements of sequence, and they amend. Now, the Hebrew idea of telling history was not the same as the uh, Latin or the Greek idea of writing history. Our idea of writing history is much, much different. We're going to start with so-and-so is born at this time, and then the, this, they'll give you the genealogy of the... Um, uh, of the, the the man's family, I just picked up uh, a book, a biography I started reading the other day called "The Biggest Brother," and it's the story of Major Richard Winters, Dick Winters, who was the commander of Easy Company in 101st Airborne, uh, made uh, famous by Stephen Ambrose's book "The Band of Brothers." And I had recorded that show not long ago, and as I was watching it, I thought. This seems to be a pretty solid portrayal of Winters. I wonder if he was really that way, because you get the hint that he had a solid religious background, but it was just a little bit of a hint, so I wanted to find out, so I discovered that he, after Band of Brothers came out, a, a journalist was given the task of going to interview him, and they became close friends, discovered they had grown up at opposite ends of the same street in Ephrata, Pennsylvania, and that uh, this journalist actually knew his aunt. And so they got to be really good good friends, and this guy wrote, a, it's an outstanding, uh, riveting uh, story. But you get to look at this guy's background. Dick Winters grew up. His mother was Mennonite, gave him a solid training. He went to church uh, growing up every Sunday. And throughout his career, before he got dropped into uh, Normandy for D-Day. Uh, when he was in England, he they didn't have enough barracks room for all the officers, so he stayed with a British family, went to church with them every Sunday. He would get down on his knees at the end of a hard day of battle, uh, just coming in off of Normandy Beach, and he would kneel by his sleeping bag and, and pray that he would survive another day and thank the Lord for his survival that day. I mean, this, this, this is great, but, but that's the pattern that this author follows. You start with him and where his parents were from and where his grandparents were from, and you follow, even though he has, he shifts back and forth, tells the story of, of uh, starts off telling the story of the jump into Normandy on D-Day, and then there's flashbacks in the subsequent chapters, but it follows that basic, basic pattern that, that we assume is the pattern of telling a biography. But that's not how the Jews thought. They, they don't look at history chronologically. They look at history 
uh, thematically, and they look at, and we saw this when we studied in the Gospels and the life of Christ. You see it in uh, aspects of prophecy, which is just history written ahead of time. And they that way they're able to take certain actions and trace them out to show what the consequences of those actions are and then go to some other part of the narrative. Often in Hebrew narrative, you have the overview given. And the overview, for example, in Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 4 is an overview of everything that God did in the uh, seven days of creation, including the seventh day of rest. And then in chapter 2, it comes back and focuses on just what happened on the sixth day. And so liberals come along and say, oh, well, we have uh, one story of creation written by uh, the E guy, and then the second story is written by the J guy, and these are contradictory, they have problems, and they're written without anybody thinking about consistency. So uh, we have to understand how Hebrews wrote. And so they wrote in this theological manner, in a logical manner, developing out what was going on and uh, how things went in a particular uh, direction. And they would show the results of bad decisions that way. And so... It is something where you where you actually learned. So, um, according to these scholars, to finish out the quote, he says, uh, scholars discover everywhere duplications, contradictions, derangements of sequence, and they amend. According to them, the text has been tampered with by the first, second, and third hands of redactors and expanders, most of whom were complete fools or debauchers. Absolutely no respect for whoever wrote the Bible. It does not occur to the scholars that the biblical author wrote in an entirely different way and not according to the schema of Latin composition. Now, this this statement from a well-recognized, nationally recognized Jewish scholar, along with Umberto Casuto's uh, book on docu- the documentary hypothesis, shows exactly uh, what the errors are in that whole approach. And you may think, well, you never heard that. Well, let me tell you, it's everywhere. And we're seeing the fruits of that kind of an education today where people don't believe the Bible is anything but just another mythology book uh, like the Greeks or the Romans or the, um, uh, or, or the Persians had in the, in the ancient world. So we see that there's a difference here, a difference of approach. And when we look at this, we look at uh, Judges uh, chapter 1, and what we're going to see is a series, a series of, of um, battles that take place. And it's different from what we discover in the book of, Je- of Joshua. So I want you to just hold your place in Judges and just turn back a few chapters to Joshua chapter, well, we'll go to chapter 12. I just want to give a quick, quick background on and what's going on here. In Judges chapter 12, we've come to what is something somewhat close to the end of, to the, to the end of the conquest. 
was looking for something here just a minute, but I didn't see that. Okay. Uh, they're coming to the end of the conquest, and they're emphasizing the fact that that of all the victories that Joshua had, and the, he took out the major centers of population, and there are 31 uh, cities and villages that he conquers, and each one is given the leaders called the king, but it's more like what we would call a mayor or, or governor in, in our world. And then we're told at the beginning of verse 1, now Joshua was old, advanced in years. This is 13.1. Now the previous chapter made it look like they had really devastated most of the country. But now we read in 13, uh, 1 and following that there was a lot left to do. He said, uh, we read, Joshua is old, advanced in years, and Yahweh said to him, you are old, advanced in years, and there remains very much land left to possess. This is the land that yet remains, all the territories of the Philistines and all of the Geshurites, and then he just continues to uh, go through a list and describing all of the land, the land of Lebanon, all the land of the Philistines, the land of uh, large chunks of other areas, uh, areas up, uh, I'll have, have a map here, areas down in the south, this area down here is the area around, you have uh, Gath, and you have Ashdod, and Ashkelon, and Gaza, and Eglon, and this is all the territory of the of the uh, Philistines. You go up to the north, you have this area up here, north of, of uh, Akko, from here up to Tyre. All of this is part of Lebanon. They're supposed to have all of that. That's part of what God promised uh, to Abraham. And then there's other areas over, uh, over to the east of there, up where Mount Hermon is, just barely on the screen up at the top, and Laish, which becomes uh, where Dan uh, the tribe of Dan moves to large chunks of that area up on the what is today the Golan Heights, and all of that is uh, hasn't been conquered yet. Just some of the key uh, centers of population, a number of them, thirty-one of them. But that just gives them they've gone in and they they've conquered the main strongholds, and now they have to be engaged in a mopping up operation. And that is what is described in chapter 1. And so when we look at chapter 1, we have this. It's basically an after-action report. It's not exciting. The writer is not going to interpret these events for us. He's just going to go through and tell what happened in each of these areas in in the Promised Land as God gave them victory, starting with Joshua. But then he's going to note a progression. Now, he, it, he shows this change that takes place over the course of time. And it's going to get worse. Uh, Joshua, I mean, excuse me, Judah is going to indicate some negative things in terms of their thinking, the way they handle uh, Bezek when they conquer Bezek and the uh, Lord of Bezek. And, and how they cut off his big toes and his thumbs. This is a mode of torture that was very much the way the pagans would handle the defeat of their enemies, but it wasn't how they were to 
to handle things. Uh, they were told under the law of Harem that they were to kill most of the Canaanites. They were to completely destroy this, this civilization and the society because it was so wicked and so so evil. And the way we put all of this together is the writer begins with this summary. After it, it came, after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, who shall be the first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight them? And so he's reminding them at the very beginning about the death of Joshua, and then he's going to talk about what happened at this uh, in this period of time. And then when you get down to the end, there's in ver- chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, we're told that they will be confronted by the angel of the Lord who will inform them of their failures and the consequences of their failures. And then we discovered that this gathering that took place was at Gilgal, or near Gilgal, at a place that came to be called Bochim, and Joshua is still alive. And that's because of the way he's telling the story. It's like he starts off with the death of Joshua, and then there's this flashback to what happens in that uh, period at the end of Joshua's life. Because what we will read about when we get down to uh, verse, uh, verse 10, that Judah is going to go up against the Canaanites in Hebron. So first they're going to go uh, against the Canaanites in Bezek. And I have a little animation here for us. So Bezek is somewhere in this general area. We don't exactly know where it is. Jerusalem is right here at the end of the arrow, and so it's a little bit northwest. That's where they uh, believe that they have uh, located it, and that's the first thing that's talked about when they defeat uh, Bezek, and then they're going to defeat the Jebusites in Jerusalem. Now, for those of you who've been paying attention for the last three years when we were studying First and Second Samuel, you know that Jeb- Jebus, or Jerusalem, was defeated by David and finally conquered. So something happens. They have an initial conquest of Jebus, and then they lose it. And it's not until David that they regain uh, that city that we know of as Jerusalem. And then they're going to go down to Hebron. And Hebron is going to be um, uh, given to uh, um, Judah and to, uh, and then Dever is going to be given to Caleb. And um, Dever is called Kiriath Sefer. You have Kiriath Arba mentioned in verse 10, which is the old name for Hebron. And that's the where the circle is. And then just south of there, there is Devir, which is probably about five or six miles south of Hebron. And that's going to go to Caleb's, uh, who will be his uh, son-in-law. That is Othniel. We don't learn of him as the first judge here, but this is when he is introduced to us. This is giving us something of the, of the overview so Judah is very successful, 
But they, the way they handled the capture of Adonai Bezek, it's, and, and the, they lose Jebus indicates a little note of foreboding that things aren't going to go quite the way that uh, they think they're going to go because they already have adopted some of the policies in, in the way they capture prisoners and take care of them that were typical of the pagans and should not have characterized them as a people set apart to the Lord. So we'll see how they handle those uh, the attacks on uh, uh, on uh, Bezek and then on Jerusalem and then going down to Hebron. And there, Caleb uh, will remind them of the promise that God made to him. Uh, and he covers this in Joshua chapter 14. Joshua chapter 14, verse 8. Then the children of Judah came to Joshua in Gilgal. So the conquest of Hebron is clearly while Joshua is still alive. They came to Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, said to him, You know the word which the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me. Remember, Joshua and Caleb were the two uh, two of the 12 spies who went into the land and came back, and they said, Yes, we can do it. And everybody else said, No, we can't. We're going to lose. And And they um, destroyed the motivation and encouraged and failed to encourage the people to follow the Lord. And God promised that uh, Joshua and Caleb would enter into the land. So he's, Caleb is reminding Joshua of Moses' promise. And now he's, back then, when they went into the land, he was 40. Now he is, it's 45 years later, and he is 85. And he is going into uh, going to take uh, take Hebron, and he says that he is strong at eighty five as he was at forty. And then we're going to have to look at this because it's referred to again, but you get more detail here. He goes into this area in Hebron, which is dominated by these giant people, the Anakim. And in those cities, and he has, he will conquer them. Remember, there were three reasons the Jews complained and said, we can't take the land. The, there are so many people. We just can't deal with that many people. They'll overwhelm us. They're like grasshoppers. Second thing they said, their cities are walled. We, we, we're not trained soldiers. We can't uh, lay a siege to walled cities and conquer them. And the third thing was that they said there were giants in the land. And Goliath was one of the descendants of these Anakim who had fled to Philistia and had intermarried with the Philistines. And Goliath was one of the, uh, was a giant that was uh, uh, the result of that union. So uh, Caleb is going to go in and he's going to defeat these giants because he's showing that, 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 that Israel, that they could have conquered them to begin because the battle was the Lord's. It wasn't his. And so it didn't matter what the obstacles were. It didn't matter how, how many people there were or the wall cities or any, any of those things. And then we go down to another city that is mentioned that they attacked down near Zephath and and Horma. We're not exactly sure where those are located, but people think that they are located down at the end of um, 
Uh, this is a reference in verse 16 to the city of Palms. Now, normally that refers to Jericho, but Jericho's not anywhere in this vicinity. Jericho is way up here to the, just to the north of the Dead Sea. So this is a, they, archaeologists have identified uh, an area down by the Dead Sea to the east of Arad. Arad is right down here where they believe this, this city was, was located. So Judah has, through this, teamed up with his brother Simeon, who had, according to the, uh, according to the census, it listed in numbers, had their, his tribal numbers were way down. He had lost quite a few, apparently, under divine discipline. And so he had teamed up with, with Judah, and eventually his inheritance is just sort of absorbed into uh, Judah's inheritance. And then we read about the Benjamites in verse 21. Now, here I'm going to go to a different map, and we see where Benjamin is actually located just to the north of Jerusalem. And so in verse 22 we read, And the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel. And so that's where we, I put that, actually that's too far north, so that's describing, um, I think I just put, there's Bethel. So they've, they've dealt with a city uh, further to the north, and then Bethel, and then they're going to deal with, uh, over at Gezer, and what happens in this is that they begin to compromise with the inhabitants of the land. And by the time we get to uh, verse uh, 20, 26, 25 and 26, there's a compromise with the Hittites and they, they're at Bethel. And then in verse 27 we read, However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beit Shan. I just had that out of order. This is where Beit Shan is located up here to the north. So remember, Beit Shan is the... Uh, settlement, the town where uh, Saul's body is going to be hung on the walls of Beit Shan. Those of you who've been to Israel, we've looked at the uh, Decapolis city of Beit Shan, the Greek city, but up there on that big tail on that hill behind it, it was that was where the old city of Beit Shan was located. Uh, so they go, uh, Manasseh does not drive out the inhabitants of Beit Shan and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or Ablim and its villages. And all of that is this area in here. It, it's to the uh, west and north of Beit Shan. They're all located here. Dor is probably what becomes known as Endor, where. Uh, we have the witch well known at the end of, of Samuel. And then we read in verse 28, it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites under tribute, but did not completely drive them out, nor did Ephraim uh, drive them out. And so uh, we look over here and we find out that Zebulun doesn't drive them out, that Asher doesn't drive them out, that Dan is defeated and later in the book is going to have to find another uh, piece of land for their, for their inheritance. So the bottom line is there's compromise at the end of this period, 
but during this time, it's clear what what is happening spiritually. And so there is a meeting at Gilgal. Now, Gilgal is located here. This is the Dead Sea at the bottom. This is Jericho, the little black dot to the left of Gilgal. And so Gilgal is a place where they had renewed the covenant with God after they had crossed over uh, the Jordan River. And so the angel of the Lord, that is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, came up from Gilgal to this location of Bochim, which is somewhere in that vicinity, and confronts the people and says, I led you up from Egypt, brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. The other part of that was, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? So they are confronted with their compromise and their failure. And then he says, these are the consequences of your failure. I will not drive them out before you. They shall be thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare to you. So your failure is now going to be the source of even greater failure. And the people, having heard this, lifted up their voices, and they wept, and so they called the name of the place Bochim. That is the angel of the Lord's interpretation of the events. And then we read again of the death of Joshua and his burial and the statement in verse 10 that when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. So you have a the following generation is a complete failure. They've rejected God, they've rejected the truth, and they're going to assimilate to the Canaanites. And they continue to do evil. And then we have a summary in verses 11 uh, down to 23 of this cycle of evil and compromise and disobedience. Verse 11, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Notice, and you can go through, we did this in Kings, I've done this other places, that most of the time when you have a reference to Israel doing evil, it is followed by the statement that they are worshiping idols. They are worshiping something other than God. Now, we don't worship physical idols in our culture, but we worship the abstract idols of the mind, our own autonomy, our own independence from God, uh, how brilliant we are that we can explain all of creation and we don't need God, so therefore we declare God to be dead, which is what happened in the early 60s. God was declared to be dead because he was no longer necessary. We were self-sufficient. We could handle everything, and we didn't need God. It was just blatant idolatry. And then verse 2 says the result of that is they forsook. It's a word that means abandoned. It's the idea of a traitor who has abandoned his post. They've abandoned their post, and they have uh, abandoned the Lord who brought them out of Egypt, and they followed other gods, and at the end they provoked the Lord to anger. They for summarized in 13, they've abandoned the Lord and served the Baal and the Asherah. And so the following verses talk about how God delivers them into the hands of their enemies. They are defeated militarily. They are put under tribute or enslaved to these foreign powers, 
And then in verse um, 15, we're told that they uh, turned to the Lord in their distress. And so verse 16, God is gracious. He meets them where they are, raises up judges. And once again, they are unfaithful. The idiom is played the harlot uh, with other gods and bowed down to them. And this cycle goes on where they, uh, they disobey God and then God brings discipline and then they turn to God for deliverance and he delivers them and then they reject God and they, it just goes on and on through uh, these cycles of the judges. And when we come to this, the Lord speaks in verse 20 and says, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and has not heeded my voice. I will also no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died so that through them I may test Israel. An application for us, it is through those in this country who have rejected Christianity that the church is going to be tested in the coming years and has been tested. And up to this point, the church has not done very well in how it has handled the opposition from the world. But uh, I read a statement today by John MacArthur that that maybe he, he was saying that maybe in light of what is taking place, that Christians will stop playing games, that Christians will not stop getting involved with the a uh, lot of the false teaching that they're involved with. And I thought, no, that isn't going to happen. I'd re- just read this chapter and I said, no, that's not going to happen. They are uh, not going to improve. There will be some, though, because they already have the Word of God in their soul. They already understand the truth that it will stand firm. And we may be like those in the early church that are going to lose their jobs, that may have their financial uh, bank account, their financial accounts confiscated, that may be put in jail, that may be tortured, will move from a period of passive persecution to active persecution. Somewhere in there, I think the Lord's going to return, but that could be 10 years from now or 100 years from now. We don't know what's going to happen. And then at chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we are uh, there's a description of those whom the Lord left that he might test Israel by them. That is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. So the Lord leaves these uh, people, these pagans, these who have rejected God as a test for those to teach them to be obedient to the Lord. And again, this concept is repeated in verse 4. They were left that he might test Israel by them, to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hands of Moses. And thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they intermarried with them. It is a dark picture. And it is one that is all too familiar to us. So we'll come back next time and begin to drill down a little bit more into what is happening in these opening sections 
and why this is of such great importance to us. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to study what happened in Israel. We see these uh, cycles, these patterns that took place, and similar things take place, have taken place with other nations and other civilizations and cultures, and we see something like this going on today, but we do pray for your grace that you would uh, bring fruit to the gospel that is being proclaimed in so many different quarters. And maybe that is part of the test. Will we stand firm to proclaim the gospel? And we pray that there might be fruit, but we also know that in a wicked and perverse generation, there may be uh, ten times the rejection of truth for the one person who responds. And Father, we just know that the only solution for us is to be serious about our spiritual life as we've never been serious before and burying ourselves into your word and into the truth of your word, teaching it diligently to our children and our grandchildren that they may have the spiritual tools to stand firm and to stand strong, to understand like the sons of Issachar, the times, that they may uh, walk before you like a Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, walking faithfully in the midst of a pagan civilization. We pray for that wisdom. In Christ's name, amen.